This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. As we're watching the butchery and the catastrophe taking place there in Israel and in Gaza, it may dawn on you that how is it possible for a human being or a group of human beings to treat others with such a barbarous and butcherous way? How is that possible when God says he's made human beings in his image? Well, war is one thing, but butchery is another. Doing such things as to defile the very identification of a human being, including babies, that's of another order, isn't it? Maybe, just maybe, it's of a demonic order. Maybe, just maybe, there's something more powerful, something more demonic, debaucherous, whatever term you might want to use to describe what's taking place there in Israel and in Gaza. You see, the question is whether demonic forces are still present today. Do they still operate today? And if they still operate today then why is it somehow within the Christian community we have such a difficult time talking about them? For some people, they start talking about demons, and they find demons under every chair and behind every bed. Other people can't even bear to use the word demon for fear that somehow some demon will crawl all over him or jump upon him and take control. Other people will refuse to use the word demon because they have a fear that somehow they're going to become what some would call a raging, uncontrolled charismatic. Well, what would you think Jesus would say? What would Jesus say? We want to talk about that here on Viewpoint today. But before we get to that, this word demon is a, is a very interesting word. Believe it or not, uh, the Greek word demon, uh, meaning demon, appears only one time in the Bible. But there's another word, demonion, another Greek word, meaning a demon, an evil spirit, and that word appears over 60 times in the Bible. Then there's a word in Hebrew meaning devil, another word meaning demon. So demons are spoken of as spiritual beings. No question about it. They are at enmity with God. They have a certain power over man. They recognize our Lord as the Son of God, believe it or not, unlike so many people that don't even recognize him as the Son of God. They belong to the number of those angels that kept not their first estate. They're unclean spirits, fallen angels. They're they're the principalities and powers against which we have to wrestle. So the word demon, interestingly, does not even appear in the King James Bible, which uses the word devils instead. But the New King James Bible uses the word demons 72 times. So here's a question for you. Are demons atheists? Well, obviously they're not, because they fear God. Do all demons fear the one true God? Yes, they do. Demons fear God. They recognize him for who he is. Because, on the other hand, you should not have to fear them because he was in you, The Holy Spirit is greater than he that is in the world. That is Satan. So these corrupt spiritual beings are limited by God in what they can do on earth. Lest their interference become as overwhelmingly great 
as they wish. And during the three-and-a-half-year period immediately before Christ's second coming, we're warned that some demons are going to be loosed by God in various ways right out of the Euphrates River as a judgment on evil. It appears that some may even have a physical form, and at the end of the Great Tribulation period, Satan and all his devils are going to be cast into a spiritual abyss, the bottomless pit from which they cannot escape. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? In the meantime, what are we supposed to do when... The Gospel of Mark says this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils or demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So the Bible says, and they, that his disciples, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming all the word with those very signs following. How are we to understand that? And why is that passage almost never preached in so many congregations across America? Well, today they say the fools rush in where angels fear to dread. On the other hand... We're not fools, and we're going to rush in, well, not rush in, but we're going to deal with a subject that very that very few people are able to deal with openly because they fear, in various ways, what would happen if they deal with the subject. Our special guest today, Greg Locke, a pastor there in Tennessee, which you'll note from his um, uh, his The tenor of his voice, let's put it that way, the tenor of his voice reveals that he is a Tennessean from the inside out. Greg Locke joining us here on Viewpoint to talk about his book, Cast It Out. Greg, it's good to have you on the program. I'm honored to be on the show. Thank you so much. Well, brother, you uh, uh, tell us a little bit about their background real quickly. Well, I was a strict cessationist, you know, meaning by that, that I did not believe in any of the gifts in the continuation of anything apostolic. I was always taught and believed that once the final apostle died, the power died with them, and so there was no more need for tongues and miracles and healings and certainly nothing of a demonic nature. I I jokingly tell people the only thing I understood about deliverance ministry is it was a Burt Reynolds movie in the 70s. That's all I understood (laughs) about deliverance. I was a a very capital B Baptist, and I was afraid of what I called the charismaniac world. And so God began to do some unbelievable things in the context of our local church Mm -hmm. that really embarrassed me and proved to me that, yes, God very much is still speaking and working through the operation of the Holy Spirit and the gifts in his church. And so he began to do things that I had preached against for many years. And once he gets out of the box, yeah. Isn't it interesting that we seem to have this propensity, even though the Scripture warns about us adding to the Scripture or deleting from the Scripture, we seem to have this propensity to isolate out those portions of Scripture that we don't kind of like or that our uh, professors or uh, theologians told you, uh, well, we don't want to deal with that, that's too troublesome or that's not appropriate today or whatever. And so in reality, don't we do what Thomas Jefferson did and take a razor blade and basically cut out all of those passages we don't must like? Oh, 
1,000%, absolutely, because we either completely ignore them or we dance around them and try to explain them away. And so what I did is I would just explain them away, but the crowd would shout amen because they'd been taught that as well. And so I never wanted to deal with subjects that were what I would consider theologically uncomfortable. Right. But talking about demons should be uncomfortable. This is not dandelions and butterflies, right? This is demons, <laughs> and we should talk about it very openly. Well, the problem is, uh, and, and I think uh, C.S. Lewis spoke to this uh, very interestingly, he said the problem when we deal with the subject of demons or the demonic is that we either avoid it or we jump into it with three and a half feet and turn it into an excessive interest. And in both ways, we actually do disservice to the scripture. We'll be right back after this, friends. Greg Locke, his book, Cast It Out. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Is it true that everywhere there is sin, there is rabid demon activity? Well, I don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't exactly say that. But certainly, where sin abounds, it would appear that there is demonic activity that does abound. To what extent, and how would we identify it? And is this the same as the discerning of spirits that the Apostle Paul talked about? All of that today here on Viewpoint, and I'm glad that you've joined us. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. I remember back in the uh, mid to late 1970s, I uh, had just graduated from law school, was beginning my law practice, and the Lord began to grip my heart that there was something more about the Christian faith that somehow I had not come to grips with. My wife also began to have the same experience And we were very troubled. We didn't know what to do with it, didn't know how to respond to it, uh, because we had both grown up in the church, both grown up in the traditional evangelical church. My father was a pastor for 50 years, and uh, I grew up as a uh, garden variety cessationist, which means uh, we just didn't believe that uh, all of these demonstrable expressions that Mark talked about as becoming the signs that would uh, display the uh, the Great Commission, fulfilling the Great Commission of God, that it was more than just uh, teaching or preaching, it was also demonstrating the power of God. And so those things were just out of our experience, out of our experience. One day, a uh, a contractor came to my house, And I needed his help, and so he helped me uh, brace up some columns to hold up a porch. And then he wanted to get together and just have a little chat. So we did. And he invited me to go to a gathering of men uh, on a weekend. And uh, he called it an advance. Not a retreat, but an advance. And I I did not want to go, And besides which we were... Uh, quite poor at that time, even though I just 
started the practice of law, I'd actually taken a loss uh, from my teaching salary to begin the practice of law, believe it or not. And so he talked with my wife behind my back and said, you know what, I really want Chuck to go with me, so uh, I'll pay his way. Well, he took all, just kicked all the pins out from under me, all my uh, resistance, and I went with him. And the Holy Spirit did something in my heart that weekend that I can never, ever, ever forget. And that is, he revealed to me that the Word of God was still alive and powerful and that we could take it at face value at his Word. So that when the Bible said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and these signs shall follow them that believe, in my name they shall cast out devils, speak with new tongues, take up serpents, drink any deadly thing that shall not hurt, that they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I thought, hmm, this is way beyond my understanding. But the Holy Spirit quickened my heart that I had to do something with it. When I came home, uh, our four-year-old daughter, who had been deathly sick because of a horrific allergy to milk and all milk derivatives, our church, our large Nazarene church, had prayed for her over and over and over again. She had had to be rushed to the hospital day after day to have adrenaline pumped into her heart to shake her loose uh, from death's door. So I came home from this uh, advance, a a.k.a. retreat, and I said to my wife, you know what, the Bible says these signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. We've got a a daughter here who is deathly sick. Uh, Do you think, would you agree with me to lay hands on Nicole and uh, trust God to heal her? And that's what we did. Here's what happened. She was four years old, very precocious. And she turned to me and Kathy after we had prayed, and she said, can I have a chocolate cookie? Now, she knew that chocolate cookies had milk in them. She knew that. And so we responded to her and said, honey, well, don't you think we ought to go a little slower on this? And here was her response, Greg. You don't really think I'm healed, do you? Mm. You don't really think I'm healed. Do you? This changed our life. The next week, by the way, we gave her the chocolate cookie. She had no reaction. Usually she would have had an instant reaction. That next weekend, we took her out with two friends her age, and she celebrated her healing with her first glass of milk, her first bowl of ice cream, and never had another reaction to milk products again, and she's now 50 years of age, and he is my right-hand servant in our office. Wow, praise the Lord. You know what, Greg? <laughs> Sometimes God has to get our attention in strange ways because we can be so stubborn, and we could be raised up and trained, thinking we're trained in the ways of the Lord, and actually being trained contrary to the ways of the Lord. Have you seen that? Mm. Oh, we see it so often because people want to deny the reality that we are under spiritual warfare. When even the armor of God is prescriptive, right? You can be under oppression, affliction, and an attack if you don't put it on. Because the only thing the armor of God is theologically telling us that it protects us from is not the world, not our flesh, 
not the culture that's buck wild and crazy, but so that we may stand against the wild and the trickery of the devil. Whoa! How could God's people ever be afflicted by demons? How could they not be, right? Because they want to destroy us, because they hate the fact that we are the specific divine design of God that's created in God's image. And it's almost as if they rebel, get kicked out of heaven, we take their place, they're kicked off, angry and mad about it, and here's what people don't get. <laughs> deliverance ministry, what you want to call it, exorcism, deliverance ministry, whatever, it, it's so much more simplistic than people give it credit for and pay mm. homage to, because demons have one responsibility when it comes to affliction, and that is take our peace. They don't care how they take your peace. For example, my wife also, interestingly enough, was delivered from a lifelong food allergy of being lactose intolerant. Every week we see lactose intolerance. We Mm -hmm. see people that have to have a gluten-free diet. People that have certain sicknesses. The Bible calls it a spirit of infirmity. And once the spirit of infirmity is rebuked, the thing that kept you from being healed and having, you know, no allergic reaction, that thing, once it's gone, your body comes back into order because by his stripes we are healed. And so demons don't care how big or how small the affliction is. They just want to take your peace. What expelling a demon does is restores your peace. No more nightmares. Mm. You can sleep at night. So it works with a four-year-old girl, and it works with an 85-year-old man. It's so simple it should never work. Well, it always works because the power is in the name of Jesus. Well, the Scripture says, Great peace of they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. But it was the Apostle Paul who also talked about uh, uh, deliverance. Uh, he was very concerned that uh, that people would come under the power. In fact, he said that uh, we understand the wiles of the evil one, the ways of the devil. Mm-hmm. So seeing that we understand them, don't let them overcome you. Don't yeah. participate. Don't become co-opted or cooperative with the devil and his ways. But Christians do. In fact, it's one of the most common things in our world today. When we diss what God has says about any particular matter that he wants us to do or not do, when we diss that and do it what God says not to do or don't do what he says to do, we're actually giving place to the devil, aren't we? Oh, 100%. And it's an open door. And all the enemy needs is an open door. And once you yeah. open the doorway to disobedience, that's why First Samuel fifteen twenty three says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Wow! Well, we know witchcraft is demonic. So how does witchcraft come upon you? Disobedience to the Lord. Well, you could actually call your book uh, uh, "Open Door Ministries for the Devil." so you cast out a lot of open doors (laughs) yeah in other words we're extending hospitality to the wrong spirits in our lives and uh, friends this is uh i think you're beginning to see that this can be very important in your life it's not that everything that happens in your life is demonic it's not that we should be hunting down being on a demon hunt or a witch hunt that's not our purpose here This is not about turning the Christian life into some Halloween uh, ceremony. This is about real spiritual life. That's what what we're talking about here today. And uh, Greg Locke, our guest, has his book, Cast It Out, The Call to Set People Free. And uh, I think it'll help you understand. And he he shares an awful lot about his life and uh, uh, how he came to understand 
having a background of 30 years of cessationism, believing that all these passed away, that somehow these things were not for today. In other words, getting rid of the very things that Mark, the disciples said, were the signs that should follow them to believe. So now we have to begin to ask ourselves, Do are we really believers? Do we really believe? And what is it that we believe? We just believe what we want to believe? Do we believe everything that Jesus said? And what's interesting is so many people who are cessationists will say something like this. I believe the Bible from cover to cover and the cover too, except what they don't like in the Bible. You see, you have to put the exception clause in there. And we all seem to have the ability to insert our exception clauses. So here's the deal. This book is a $22 book. It's yours for $19 on our website today, saveus.org, saveus.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or you can write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. If you're writing a check, add $5 for postage and handling, and we're going to get the book in your hands. And I think as you read it with an open heart, uh, the Holy Spirit will begin to connect with you just as he did with our guest and with yours truly, with my wife and so on. Because if it had not been for that that occurred in the late 1970s, you would not be hearing my voice on radio today. It's as clear as that. And so many people for 28 and a half years have said, you're giving me real hope and real direction here as we confront the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. So, Greg Locke, with with his book, Cast It Out, The Call to Set People Free. Now, I want to urge you to become a partner with us, friends, because day after day, as you know, we're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective, and today is no exception. We're talking about spiritual warfare today. We're talking how to, about how to be victorious in our Christian life. You want to know how to do that? Well, we're talking about it today. This is one aspect of walking in victory. And you know that as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching, the challenge for spiritual warfare and victory is going to be greater and greater and greater. And the Apostle Paul warned that many are going to fall away. Many are going to fall away because they're not prepared to stand. They're just not prepared to stand. And we're going to have brothers and sisters out there who are weak and who have allowed uh, some kind of spirit to come upon them and to begin to affect them and bring profound discouragement and dismay as they face persecution, they face what's coming on the earth. And friends, it's our time to stand and to act. That's what we want to talk about in the balance of the program here today on Viewpoint. And let me just mention to you, out there in Connecticut and uh, New York and Massachusetts, we're coming to you for breakfast on November, 3rd, November 4th, Saturday morning from 8 until 11.30 a.m. 8 to 11.30 a.m. And we're going to be, uh, my wife and I are going to be there. We're going to be sharing with you a whole lot of things, things that we haven't even talked about here on the air and perhaps would not talk about here on the air, but we're going to be there and share them with you. We'll bring all of our books and materials, have special prices for you. 
But in order to uh, avail yourself of that breakfast, you're going to have to register, and you need to do it immediately because the deadline is Friday. Okay? So give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Go to the website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Go to uh, click on the uh, web store, and in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the uh, breakfast. Click on that, sign up, sign up for yourself, for your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren, your pastor, your friends, your relatives, and those who, uh, your, your neighbors, anybody you can think of that you care about. If you care about it, they will too. Don't delay, friends. Today is the day of salvation, so to speak, with regard to that breakfast. Don't delay. Don't don't say manana. Don't say tomorrow. Do it today. We'll be right back with uh, Greg Locke in just a moment. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer with our special guest here, Greg Locke, and his book, Cast It Out, The Call to Set People Free. It used to be, back in American history, there was a phrase that was rather common, and it was this, demon rum. Demon rum. Somebody that got caught in alcohol addiction, they talked about him being caught with demon rum. So, is alcohol a demon? What do they mean by that? Is there such a thing as the alcohol demon? Well, I have not heard his voice, and uh, I don't know for sure. Maybe our guest knows today, but maybe there was something, a deeper truth that the people were trying to speak to there. What say you, Greg? Well, I think it's interesting because the world tells on itself, and so does demons, because if you go to a liquor store... (laughs) The sign over the top of the door will say wine and spirit. They mm-hmm. tell you what it is. And so there's no doubt there's a demonic connection. And so it doesn't mean that every single time somebody gets drunk, there's a demon behind it. But at the end of the day, I do believe that there is a generational curse of alcoholism that can be upon certain people's families, and they must be broken off. And, and would that demons. be the same for drugs? Yeah, absolutely. Could we, could we say demon yeah. drugs? Yeah, I mean, we would be more specific. You see, the name of a demon is the function of a demon. Uh-huh. And so when we talk about the spirit of fear, that's the name. There's not just one of them, because the function is what it does. It's fear, right? So, yeah, right. I need all different types of medication spirits, alcoholic spirits, you know, spirits of suicide, spirits mm. of death. It just depends on what doorway people have opened up. And so yeah. I understand not everything is a demon, but I promise you there's a lot more demonic activity 
than we care to talk about because well, it's such an uncomfortable subject. Well, yeah, and the Apostle Peter, I think it was Apostle Peter, talked about those who fear of dre- death. I guess it was in Hebrews. Those who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Well, yep. is that demonic bondage? Is it possible that we could be so terrified and fear death that we have actually given ourselves over to a demonic oppression? 100%. I believe that the spirit of death causes people to fear death, because God even says, I've not given you the spirit of fear. He mm-hmm. didn't call it an attitude or an atmosphere. Cause of a spirit. A spirit is a person without a body, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, as you quoted earlier in the program, principalities, mm-hmm. powers, and spiritual wickedness. And so if we learn that what we're struggling with sometimes, many times, is not a something, but a someone, mm-hmm. we'll fight different, right? Like we talk about depression, depression, depression. I yep. get it. I, I had depression for a long time, but I figured out what the Bible calls it, Isaiah 61 and verse 4. We put on the garment of praise for the spirit of, of heaviness. heaviness. Uh-huh. So you so didn't have depression, depression, depression you didn't have depression, depression had you. That's it. And that's why, people can't, that's why they can't just snap out of it. Somebody's like, why can't you just snap out of it? You know, why can't you explain it? You can't, because it's a supernatural oppression upon people. And so it's a spirit. So it's not a something, it's a someone. Okay. Now, the question that everybody always asks, and I don't want to spend all the rest of our time talking about this, but the question is always asked, well, can Christians be demon-possessed? Now, you ask the question in a different way. You ask, can Christians be demonized? So what's the right. difference? How do you respond to that question? Well, I think the word possession in the King James is an unfortunate word. We'd be 95% of the way understanding you know, the, the real victory behind deliverance ministry if we didn't have that word, because... The word possession automatically makes us think of ownership. We're not talking about ownership. We're talking about somebody that is afflicted, mm-hmm. oppressed, tormented. Even the Apostle Paul, he called his infirmity, he said, an angel of Satan was in my flesh to buffet me. So even Paul had demonic activity in his life, right? And so we, we have to understand that we're not talking about ownership. If we are saved, we are owned by the blood of Jesus. He lives in the Holy of Holies. We are his temple. But the temple had a courtyard. And the facts are, you leave your front door of your house open long enough, something's walking in. Some critter is eventually coming in. And if you open doors, something's coming in. You're going to be oppressed by something, no doubt. So we're not talking about full-on possession. That would be for a lost person. I do believe a lost person can be fully subjugated by the devil, and I've met that. And I don't make a habit out of casting demons out of lost people, because lost people don't need deliverance. They need Jesus Christ. And once they get Jesus Christ, then we have the power and the authority in his name to cast demons out. But as far as Christians are concerned, absolutely they can be oppressed and afflicted massively by demons in their flesh, right? Not living in their spirit, in their flesh, in their mind. And it's a it's a continual warfare that people deny, and they try to medicate demons. They try to pray for it. They try to counsel. If it's a demon, not always is it. If it is a demon, you can't traction it out. You can't treatment it out. You cannot pray it out. There's only one way to get it out. And medication is not the answer. You have to cast it out through the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. That's it. That's the only remedy. All right. Now, that being the case, uh, some people would say, well, you know, you you become now one of those charismaniacs. Uh, The word charisma uh, actually is a good biblical term there, and it's a term that describes uh, some of what Paul discussed there in Romans chapter 12 and Mm -hmm. even chapter 13. 
uh, 14. So obviously the Apostle Paul uh, dealt with these things, and uh, he survived the uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, and uh, he was not one of the disciples that Jesus granted the power to do these things, and yet he did them also. So mm-hmm. apparently things didn't cease with the Apostle Paul either, did they? Right, not at all. You know, Stephen did the same things uh, throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. Philip did the same things throughout the Bible, and church history would tell us. I mean, Augustine, he's like the father of the Reformed faith. He had to write a book before his death apologizing for cessationism, because he'd seen too many people saved, <laughs> right? I mean, and healed. And so you, you have to understand that this idea that God's not working this way anymore is foolish. And so if people want to call me a charismatic, well, I guess Jesus must have been one, Paul must have been one, the 12 disciples were, the 70 were, Peter was, all the New Testament preachers were. I mean, so all of these people cast out demons. It's it's really the number, outside of preaching the gospel, it's the number one thing Jesus did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We always, you know, we're like, oh, he turned water to wine. Yeah, that's beautiful, but he did that one time. That's mm-hmm. it. And we build we build whole theological books and systems on things that he did once or twice, but we ignore what he did, who Mark says, in every synagogue in Galilee, every day, everywhere he went. And sometimes mass deliverance was so massive and so big that the Bible says, from the going down of the sun to the rising the next morning, evil spirits and those that were tormented by them came out all night long. And we want to deny it and be like, well, you know, let's wear a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? He would throw the bracelet away and do what Jesus did. Jesus cast out demons. Yeah. Well, he did, and then he gave authority, power to his disciples to do the same. And then he gave authority and power to 70 others, other than the disciples, uh, to go out and do the same. So it appears that what he was doing was deputizing all those who truly followed him to follow that same pattern. And, of course, then that would make sense because in Mark chapter 16, which is Mark's version of the Great Commission, he says that these signs shall follow those that believe. And it's part of going into all the world and preaching the gospel. In other words, it's show-and-tell time. It isn't just tell people, it's show time. Now, here's what happened. Uh... About 10, 15 years ago, reports began to come through the Southern Baptist Convention and Missionary uh, Center. Uh, that's right here in Richmond, by the way. And uh, the reports were that missionaries were quitting. The uh, SBC said, you're not going to do these things. You're not going to preach about these things. Uh, we don't believe those things. So the missionaries were saying, well, then... What are we supposed to do? Because the people in these countries where you sent us expect us to be able to have, I mean, they have power. They have demonic power. What are we supposed to do? And so finally, the SBC had to give them authority to be able to begin to do some of these things to demonstrate that Jesus had more power than the demonic forces there in those countries. It seems to me that uh, somehow... You know, when push comes to shove and reality comes to to square us in the face, maybe then, maybe we might just reassess what God has said. And what we're finding beautifully is that a lot of preachers that threw me under the bus when I began to to flow in the discerning of spirits and deliverance, Mm -hmm. they'll come to us and they'll be like, okay, let's just see what this thing is about. 
and we'll get in a mass deliverance situation, and their wife will flare up with an oppressive, evil spirit. And then all of a sudden, what do you do then? They're like, man, I, I live with this lady every day of my life. Here she is resting on the floor, calling off a curse from the Masonic Lodge that her great-grandfather made. And then all of a sudden, she's heaving and crying and throwing up. What do you do with that? Well, normally they go home, and they turn the whole church upside down. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, God is not calling us. And I don't think what Mark was talking about here is that we're supposed to put on some kind of a show. This isn't about a show. This is about rea- a spiritual reality. And we either recognize that there is an enemy, an arch enemy of God, who is our arch enemy, the arch enemy of every human being made in God's image. And if we recognize that, then we have to understand and come to grips with the fact, okay, now what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Do we just preach a theologically square gospel, like present a, a, a four-square meal or something like that, or do we add the additional elements? Uh, for instance, if somebody, let, let's say that they're, they're overcome by anorexia or bulimia, would you say, Greg, that that is a situation where a person has become overcome by a demonic spirit? Almost always. It would seem that way, wouldn't it? Yeah. They've given themselves to this, and now that spirit has taken control. And here's what what they can do. And I tell them, they'll come to the office, and I'll say, look, when in doubt, cast it out. Okay? (laughs) If you're not sure if it's demonic, then here's what you do. Let me control the, the conversation, right? Let me let me lead you as if it were demonic, and let's see what happens. Because if it is, it's going to flare itself up, because it can't handle the power of Jesus. Mm. Okay, so you're saying Christians themselves cannot become uh, demon-possessed, but can be demon-not uh, possessed, but... Uh, Oppressed. Oppressed. Okay, we'll pick up. We pick up with that after this break, friends. The book, cast it out. Nineteen dollars. We'll put the twenty-two dollar book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, one eight hundred SAVE USA, or write to us at five dollars postage and handling. We'll be right back after this. Much more to talk. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. 
I uh, happen to, as many of you know, happen to prefer the King James Version of the Bible, and there are reasons for that. However, there are some aspects about the King James Bible that aren't quite the way they should be. For instance, one of those has to do with the use of the word power. And here it is. He gave them power over spirits, demons, to cast them out. The real word there is not power, it's authority. Mm. Now, why in the King James Version did they choose to use the word power instead of authority? I believe it's because of this. These writers, translators, were doing so at the will of a king, King James. And they chose to use a word that wouldn't offend the king. So they used power instead of authority, because only the king had the authority, you see. And so every time the word authority in the Greek should have been there, the King James uses the word power. So he gave them authority over these spirits. That puts things in a very different light, doesn't it, Greg? Oh, it puts things in a marvelously different light. And you're exactly right, and I believe historically that's why they did it. And to give people just a quick synopsis of what that authority looks like, it's like the lady that wears a vest and has a whistle and walks into five lanes of traffic to, you know, stop people right. at public school crossings. Mm-hmm. Somebody likes her, but she didn't have a gun, right? She didn't have a hand grenade. She didn't have an FBI warrant. She didn't have any of that. The only thing she does is she walks out into the middle of chaos and she puts up her hand. Nobody stops because her nails are done, right? Nobody stops because her hand is so powerful. They stop. Because her hand going up represents governmental authority that's been placed upon her. And that's what the church has. We have authority from the government of heaven, from the throne of God, that's been placed upon us. And we have such authority that we can walk into the chaos of this culture, throw up our hand and say, stop. In the name of Jesus, you have to stop. We have that authority. And yet preachers are not preaching not only with that authority, they're keeping people from walking in and operating in that and I think part of the reason for that is we have a false understanding or an in, let's put it this way, an incomplete understanding of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, look, here's what you, here's what you should be about. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things will be. Some people say, yeah, we're going to seek first the kingdom of God, but they're not seeking righteousness. Mm. Others will say, we're, we're seeking righteousness, but they're not seeking the kingdom of God. You see, seeking righteousness without the perspective of the kingdom of God loses the whole position of authority. Mm. You're just seeking yeah. righteousness, which leads to pride. Look how righteous I am. You become a hypocrite. You become a Pharisee. No, it's about the kingdom of God. And if there's a yeah. kingdom, there has to be a king. Well, how can Jesus be king if he doesn't have any subjects? And how would you know if he had any subjects if they don't obey him? That's why when we seek the kingdom of God, we have to also seek to walk in righteousness because that's the testimony that he's king. And when we come with that attitude, with that understanding, there's no pride in that. There's just authority because we're deputized to represent the king. Therefore, Mm. we can, Greg, it seems to me, we then have authority, not power, we have authority to cast out devils and so on. 
Absolutely. The, the reason I think that the demons and the devil absolutely hate this conversation is because Jesus said, speaking about the kingdom, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come unto you. So the first sign that the kingdom has come to the earth was the expelling of an evil spirit. So a church, then, that claims to be kingdom-minded but doesn't believe in casting out demons are false advertisers because Jesus <laughs> said that's the first way you know that the kingdom has come. And if God has a kingdom, he talks about two kingdoms. So we know when kingdoms collide, the devils do not like that mm. because what happens is when you expose the kingdom of darkness publicly, mm. the kingdom of righteousness always overcomes it. So deliverance is not to be done in a corner. Jesus never kicked people out of the church when they manifested demons. Mm. He didn't turn the live stream off, right? He kept <laughs> doing it because it was an object lesson that yeah. his kingdom is greater than the devil's kingdom. Well, Going back to Mark 16, uh, his version of the Great Commission, which, by the way, the Great Commission is not primarily evangelism. The Great Commission is to teach people to, to obey God. That's what it really is. If we read in Matthew chapter 28, that's, uh, to, that's what it really is. And evangelism is just giving birth to babies. What do you do from there? We don't want a bunch of stillborn Christians out there that uh, are as good as having Hamas cut their heads off after they're born. Mm, yeah. Okay, so uh, in Mark chapter fi uh, 15, 16, he says, now you're going to go into all the Word, you're going to preach the gospel, and you're going to show these signs, and these signs shall follow them that believe. Now, here's the problem, and that is, I think, Greg, that we have taught a false understanding of the word believe. Mm. In the Greco-Roman world that you and I live in, with our backgrounds, we think that believe means to give certain cognitive assent to certain religious facts, like God is God, and Jesus mm. is the Son of God, and he died for our sins, and so on. But the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, and God led them out with a mighty hand, they believed. They believe that God led them out of Egypt. He did. They believed yeah. that they were the descendants of Abraham, that they were heirs according to the promise. They believed all those things, but God didn't let a single one of them into the promised land except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because they didn't really believe. They believed facts, but they did not believe in their hearts. There was no real faith there, and I think we've got it all confused, and people are being led astray and are not prepared for the trials that are coming. Well, even James says the devils believe, and what do they do? They tremble. They know the facts, but they won't repent. They won't follow. The mm. belief there, he even said in the previous verses, going to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He did believe that it's baptized, right? And so there's that obedience. Right. That was the belief, the following. And so because of that, here's how you're going to behave. So if, you're, if your behavior is not affected by your belief, mm. then you're believing wrong. You're believing wrong. And so when you believe properly, right, here's the signs. that. Or follow. maybe you're not it's believing loaded. wrong. You're just not believing at all. At not all. really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I want to bring up something. That. I want to bring up something real practical here before we have to close okay, yeah. up. And that is my wife happens to believe that one of the deepest problems in the church today, particularly among uh, Christian women, uh, is unforgiveness. Mm -hmm. Unforgiveness. Now, we all have to forgive different things. Things happen to us. 
we're, we're all in a position to where we've had to forgive or be forgiven. But what if we refuse to forgive? If I refuse to forgive, when God, when Jesus himself said, if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. So that being the case, if I refuse to forgive, no matter what the circumstances, am I giving place to the devil to come in and either oppress or possess? A thousand percent. And here's one of the reasons why. Jesus even gave a story and said about a man that, because he would not forgive someone that had violated him from mm-hmm. the heart, he said, you are going to be turned over to the tormentors. And I am convinced that unforgiveness is a contract with a tormenting evil spirit. It is the number one reason people do not receive deliverance. Even when we make demons mad, and we can walk into a room and make them mad, right? If they want to come out, they will not break the barrier of a person's bitterness and unforgiveness. Because rejection and abandonment have a covenant to stay if you can't forgive your father for abandoning you, if you can't forgive your mother, Mm, if you mm, can't forgive mm. your ex, right? You have to be able to forgive. Once you forgive, you break the barrier, and I'm telling you, they just, they come out. Forcefully, they come out. They have no other way. They have to come out. So what you're really saying, Greg, is that our will has everything to do with whether we can be delivered from the oppression or power authority of a demon yep deliverance is for the desperate if you don't want it if you're not willing to forgive then you're going to keep that torment you're going to have a spirit of nightmares you're going to have that spirit of death in your house it's just that witchcraft is going to be on you it's just a fact but when you take the willpower and say you know what i'm done with it. i'm going to repent i'm going to close this door i'm going to forgive this person i don't want to forgive and you take away the legal right you see everything god does has a legal aspect even the devil he's the accuser of the brethren before the throne of the Lord, you, right? You've been a lawyer. You understand. He he operates in court systems. Mm. And so he has a legal binding document to torment you until you forgive and tear that document up. Mm-mm-mm. So I wonder to what extent then this applies when the scripture talks about the sins of the fathers being passed on to the third and fourth generation. Is this a kind of demonic oppression, uh, manifestation that begins in one a generation, and if it's not to cut off and to recognize for what it is, that it can be passed on and torment so many. That is the essence, yes, of deliverance ministry, because generational curses are so powerful. Demons don't care about you. They care about your kids and your kids' kids. Curses will go on to the third and fourth generation, 120 to 160 years, right? It can go on and on and on. And that's why it's interesting that doctors, they won't call it deliverance, but doctors believe in deliverance more than pastors do. Because the first thing they do when you walk into their office is they give you a piece of paper that says, does hypertension run in your family? Anybody have colon cancer? (laughs) Anybody ever commit suicide? You know what they're looking for? They're looking for a generational curse. They're looking for patterns. There you go. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. Well, it's not that every single thing uh, is a generational curse in that sense, but what we're doing is taking a look in all honesty uh, at how this manifests himself in ways, perhaps, friends, that we have not thought about it. Mm. Now, it's not about trying to go out and find a demon in every place. It's not about accusing people of being demonically oppressed everywhere we go. No. But we should truly be honest, discerning of spirits 
And here is one of the things that uh, I think you mentioned. That In fact, you do mention it right here in your book. Uh, Jesus, it says, moved with compassion, did certain things. Have you noticed, friends, how Jesus, when he was moved with compassion, didn't just have nice feelings toward people? He just didn't feel remorseful for people. He just didn't have, uh, you know, didn't sit there and uh, wring his hands and, and uh, you know, feel how sorry he was for people. No, he did something. Every time he took compassion, he did something. That's what it means to take compassion, to do something. Yeah. That, Greg, it seems to me, is what many of us have not understood about the kingdom of God and our authority as his uh, ambassadors in this uh, world. Yeah, this is a ministry of love, because if you love someone, you want to see them freed from torment. And at the end of the day, here's the way that I define compassion. It's love with shoes on. You walk it out. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle John, that ambassador of love, said perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. You know, if we're afraid, if we're afraid to exercise the authority that God has given to us, we don't have perfect love. Mm. We don't. We don't have perfect love because perfect love casts out fear. No, we love ourselves more than we love the other person. We just do. We don't have compassion. We have compassion for ourselves. We want to feel sorry, but we don't want to do anything about it. We don't have perfect love because we have fear. And fear has torment. So we're tormented over it. Greg, there's so many passages of Scripture that start to have meaning when we see how our responsibility is to cast out spirits when God reveals through discerning of spirits what we should do. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And friends, the book, Cast It Out, The Call to Set People Free, uh, it's it's yours. It's a $22 book. It's yours for $19 on our website, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries. Do it today. If you're writing a check at $5 for postage and handling, and uh, again, become a partner with us, friends. There's absolutely no way we continue here. We have re- we receive no advertising on this program. You know why? Because it will curtail our freedom to speak the truth. We don't do that. We rely upon God, and He relies upon you. Thanks for joining us. Let's become kingdom ambassadors. Remember, you're under authority. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.